Today on Know the Truth, a new message from Philip DeCourcy. I don't know how you look upon your work as a drag, as a drudge, but work is not a curse. God didn't curse work. He cursed the ground upon which man would work. It's made all the harder this side of the fall. But work is still good and work is still godlike. Work is not a punishment. It is an integral part of your being and what God has called you to be. And welcome to Know the Truth with Philip DeCourcy. I'm Wayne Shepherd. Today, Philip reminds us that even before sin entered the perfect world, God created and called us to work. It's an inspiring message in the book of Proverbs titled, Whistle While You Work, from the series, That Makes Good Sense. After the message, you'll hear about a fantastic resource that will provide believers with biblical wisdom and how to continue in faith when the going gets tough. You can learn more about this at ktt.org. Right now, let's join Pastor Philip. We're going to uh, look at what God has to say about the workplace and our employment. One can imagine that if a book addresses the issues of life as the book of Proverbs purports, then it's going to address the whole issue of work, and it does. And so Proverbs 14.23, In all labor there is profit, but idle chatter leads only to poverty. That's our text. In all labor, there is profit. Seeking the Democratic presidential nomination in 1960, John F. Kennedy visited a a coal mine in West Virginia. And while he was there, he engaged a miner in conversation about his work. And then the miner engaged John Kennedy in conversation, and he asked him, a couple of questions. And the first question was this, is it true that you're the son of one of our wealthiest men? John Kennedy replied that that was true. The miner then went on to ask a second question, is it also true that you've never done one day's work with your hands in all your life? Kennedy nodded in agreement. (laughs) Well, let me tell you this, the miner replied, you haven't missed a thing. Now, If you reflect on this, I think this man's perspective on work is a rather common one, isn't it? I think he gives voice to the perspective of millions that given a chance, given a choice, work is something that they could do well without. Our nine to five lives are a ball and chain on the ankles of humanity and they make life drag. In fact, if you go one step further, I think most people would reason this way. If there is a God, then he must be not very nice because he has sentenced man to a lifetime of hard labor without parole. Now, the reality of what I'm talking about is borne out in statistics that show that on any given day here in our nation, 50,000 people quit their jobs. Some 80% are dissatisfied with their jobs and nearly 85% admit that they could work harder. In fact, half of that 85% admit that they could actually double their output if they put their mind to it. There seems to be very little joy on the job these days. 
And you see this in some of the humorous cards and bumper stickers and slogans that are cropping up all around the office these days. On one bulletin board, someone tacked up a sign that read, quote, in case of a fire, flee the building with the same reckless abandon that occurs each day at quitting time. Or here's another one. If you don't believe in the resurrection from the dead, you ought to be here five minutes before quitting time. <laughs> That's quite good. But we're, there's very few people have joy on the job. Very few people whistle while they work. And that's a huge problem. Why is it a huge problem? Because half of your waking hours will be put to your job. You'll either be um, driving to it, preparing for it, engaging in it, or resting from it. And if you don't enjoy half of your life, well, that doesn't ogre well, does it? In fact, uh, much of our lives, it seems these days, have little purpose and less pleasure in relation to work. And therefore, life itself becomes increasingly mean and meaningless. Now, with all that in mind, I want to take you to the book of Proverbs and the text that we read just a few moments ago, in all labor there is profit, because this is a book, as we said, that purports to help us live wisely and well. We saw that the whole concept of wisdom is to live skillfully. Here's a book you would think that would help you strengthen your grip on life and handle it skillfully. And if it does, and that's its end, then one would assume that within the uh, confines of this material, this book will address itself to the whole issue of labor. If this book is about living skillfully, one would assume that it's going to address that half of our lives called work. And you know what, folks? It does. Repeatedly it does. Religiously it does. This book of Proverbs addresses the whole issue of the marketplace and the workplace and how you and I can work with satisfaction, with purpose. This book will help us whistle while we work. This book will help us see that work is not a punishment, that it is a gift from God that profits those who put it to good use. In all labor, there is profit. This verse will remind us that while our worship of God may, may begin on a Sunday morning with the ringing of a church bell, it continues on Monday morning with the sounding of a factory horn. This book will remind us that all labor is sanctioned by God and therefore sacred to Him. I want us to see, first of all, what I call the place of work. Look at verse 23 of Proverbs 14. In all labor there is profit. This verse assumes the place, the dignity, and the validity of all types of work. In all kinds of labor or employment there is profit. The place and the necessity of work is assumed here because it's assumed elsewhere in the Old Testament. In fact, I want you to think about something that's rather striking. The Israelite worked for theological reasons. In fact, the Israelite worker from nine to five on any given day was living out his theology of the creation, was living out his theology of man made in the image of God. The Israelite worker never saw work as an intrusion or an imprisonment. They understood that man was made in the image of God, was made to cooperate with God in the management and the development of the earth. Or to put it another way, God 
had subcontracted aspects of his rule and his reign to mankind. Turn with me back to the book of Genesis where the Old Testament story begins, and in fact, everybody's story begins. And here's what we'll see about man's origin and man's purpose in life. In Genesis 1 verse 26, we read, Then God said, Let us. There's a hint at the Trinity right there, a plurality within the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them, that is, man and woman, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Man is distinct from the animal kingdom. Man has dominion over the animal kingdom. Peter has got it wrong. This verse challenges the evolutionary hypothesis that man is a, um, uh, an evolution of um, animal. He was distinct from the animal kingdom. He was, a very, according to verse 27, created in God's own image. In the image of God, he was created male and female. Now look at verse 28. Then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Skip over to verse um, 15 of chapter 2. And, and here the uh, story is of creation is being unpacked. Man has just been made. Eve has yet to be created. And we read in verse 15, Then the Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend it and keep it. Now here's the point you want to get. Work and employment was part of God's original plan. And as soon as man was created, he was put to work. Because people have this idea that work came with the curse. That work is a punishment for man's sin. Nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, before man ever fell, he was working. Working in God's garden. There are two words that describe Adam's work in Genesis 2 verse 15. I want you to notice them. The word tend means to work with physical labor. It means to exert oneself in manual labor. And the word keep here means to manage, to take care. It, it speaks of acting as an executive, as a supervisor. And here we see that Adam was at work watching over God's garden before the fall. He was working nine to five, six days a week. He was a blue-collar worker and a white-collar worker. He was at the same time a manual laborer and an executive, reminding us that in all kinds of work, there is profit. And you know what? This is striking, isn't it? Adam was to be the estate manager and the estate worker all at the same time. And what we learn from this is that God made man to work. God made man in his own image, and God is a working God. The Garden of Eden was not some early version of Club Med. The purpose of man is not to work himself out of work. The purpose of man is to cooperate with God in the subduing of planet Earth and creating those things which are beautiful and beneficial for all. That's his purpose. God made human beings in his own working image. God is not just a universal presence. God is a universal pressure. Do you understand this? That the God of the Bible was serving man before man was serving God. 
God made the Garden of Eden. God created the earth and its order. God created man and put him into the garden. In his own image, he created man and he put him to work. He subcontracted the Garden of Eden to Adam and then also to Eve. The God of the Bible is a working God. And those who live according to his purpose are working people. I want to say something that I think will knock the socks off you, and it is this. There is nothing more godlike than a working man. There is nothing more godlike than a working man. We were created in his image to work because he's a working God. Ephesians 1 verse 11 tells us that God is working all things out after the counsel of his own will. Our God is constantly active. Jesus said in John 5 and verse 17, my father works and I work. I remember many years ago, one of my daughters in hearing the story of John 14 and how that Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us in heaven, asked me, Daddy, why doesn't Jesus get the angels to build the houses? Because our God's a working God. He gets his hands dirty, if we might use that anthropomorphism, to describe his constant creative activity above and among his creation. Now, there's two things I want us to gather, and this is very important. This will revolutionize your perspective on work. This will give you a redemptive perspective on work. I want you to see two things from this thought, that in all kinds of labor there is profit. As we think about the doctrine of creation, and we think about our theology of man in the light of God, here's what we've got. We've got, first of all, the essential dignity of work. I'm repeating myself here, but taking it a little bit further. Work is not a curse. I don't know how you look upon your work as a drag, as a drudge, but work is not a curse. And it is not a punishment. Work was ordained by God before the fall. And while the curse of God upon sin makes it harder and sometimes futile, it did not remove the essential dignity of work. God didn't curse work. He cursed the ground upon which man would work. But work has an essential dignity to it. It's made all the harder this side of the fall. But work is still good and work is still godlike. What we see here is that to be gainfully employed is part and parcel of the human existence. Work is not a punishment. It is an integral part of your being and what God has called you to be. Work is not some long, dark tunnel that separates two holidays from each other. It is a call to join God. Listen, it is a call to join God in the glorious task of subduing the earth and creating all things bright and beautiful. In this sense, work is a divine activity because in work, we have an invitation to work alongside God. Oh, that you would grasp that and grapple with that. Listen to these wonderful words from a an American theologian of the 19th century by the name of Henry Giles, he said this, quote, man must work, that is certain as the sun, but he may work grudgingly or he may work gratefully. He may work as a man or he may work as a machine. There is no work so rude that he may not exalt it, no work so impassive that he may not breathe a soul into it, no work so dull that he may not enliven it. That's the glory of our calling as men. That's a biblical doctrine of man. Leads us to a second thought. This is wonderful. Not only the essential dignity of work, but the essential equality of work. The essential equality of work or the equal dignity of work. 
This is implied in the text here in Proverbs 14, 23. In all labor or in all kinds of labor, there's profit. And it's what we have already seen from Adam and Eve. Adam was a blue-collar worker and he was a white-collar worker. He was a manual laborer and he was an executive. He was made in God's image because God is a working God. In fact, in the Old Testament, God describes himself as a contractor, except the Lord build a house. They labor in vain that build it. He's described as a potter, a vine dresser. Our God is a working God. And those made in his image will give themselves to all kinds of activity with dignity and with diligence. God views all kinds of work with the same pleasure because it takes all kinds of people with all kinds of skills to do what God wants done on the earth. If we're going to subdue the earth, if we're going to have dominion over the animal kingdom, if we're going to um, live out our purpose and take all the gifts that God has given us and all the minerals that are embedded in planet earth and all the opportunities we have to, um, to produce, to discover, to develop, it's going to take all kinds of people. It's going to take the scientist working in the laboratory, but it's going to take some guy boring for mineral on the side of some mountain. It's going to take all kinds of people doing all kinds of work, and God is pleased with it all because in all kinds of labor there is profit. And this verse of ours stamps its foot on this idea that there's, there's work that is sacred and there's work that's secular. There's work that's better than other work. That's an unbiblical thought. Because our doctrine of creation, the image of God, and our understanding of Christian service, the priesthood of all believers, leads us to believe that all work has an essential and an equal dignity. God can be served just as well at the milling machine or the kitchen sink as behind the pulpit. Some serve God in the church, and some serve God in the factory or in the home. We have all one calling. We've just got many different vocations, haven't we? That's our perspective on life. God calls craftsmen to serve him as much as priests and prophets. Didn't we see that back in Exodus 31 verses 1 to 11, where God calls the workmen to get the tabernacle ready. Some will embroider, some will construct, and God gives them skill and he gives them wisdom. God calls the craftsmen just as much as he calls the priest. Martin Luther thought that it was just as much the work of God to change a baby's diaper as to preach the Word of God. Can you imagine how liberating that was in Europe with this sense of a caste system, the priests of the church, and then there was the people? It was a scam to make the people beholden to the priests. But the Protestant gospel came and reminded them that in Jesus Christ, they are priests. And when they beat the metal on the anvil in the blacksmith's shop, it's as strategic and as holy to God as a theologian taking his quill from an inkwell and writing doctrine. Every Christian has one calling but many vocations. And folks, we need to hear that because if that is not true, there's an awful slice of your life that doesn't have eternal significance, isn't there? I mean, someone did this calculation that most people spend about 4,000 hours in church across their lifetime in services just like this, but they spend 88,000 hours in the workplace. And you and I need to know that that 88,000 hours can count for eternity because God has called you 
to be a subcontractor for him, to live out his will and his purpose for you in the workplace, if that's where your vocation is. Some of us have a church vocation like myself. Some of us have a domestic vocation as being a career homemaker. Some of us have a work vocation out in the factory or the office. But we all have one calling to walk worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. One calling, many vocations. We are all priests, and we can offer what we do to Jesus Christ. Remember that scene back in the book of Daniel? Daniel chapter uh, 6. You know Daniel's story. He was carted off. He was a very handsome, bright young man. He was um, pulled into the employment of the Babylonian government and kingdom. And uh, there he worked as a civil servant. He was a white collar worker. But he lived out his faith in the workplace, brought him into um, conflict with uh, the powers that be. You know the story of how he wouldn't bow down to the idol, but uh, he turned his face towards Jerusalem and prayed to God three times a day. He winds up uh, in the lion's den. But what's interesting and pleasant, the one I'm talking about, is that when Darius comes in the morning to see if his friend Daniel is still alive, because Darius was caught on the, on the horns of a dilemma, he had made a decree that for which there were no exemptions, even his friend Daniel. And um, he comes and the stone is lifted and he looks down into that, probably that stone pit uh, somewhere in the palace there. And in Daniel 6 verse 10, here's what Darius says to Daniel, the civil servant. Oh, Daniel, servant of the living God. Basically, are you still alive? Isn't that interesting? Daniel, servant of the living God. Yeah, you can be a servant of God and be a civil servant all at the same time because there is a, an essential dignity of work and there is an essential equality of work. We're listening to Know the Truth with Philip DeCourcy and a new message titled Whistle While You Work from our study in the book of Proverbs called That Makes Good Sense. It's our hope that this study will equip you with godly wisdom so you can act skillfully and productively in all areas of life. And for the next few weeks, it's our goal that Know the Truth to share these messages with as many men and women as possible. But because Know the Truth is a listener-funded ministry, it's your financial gifts that help cover the cost of providing Know the Truth to listeners all over the world. So would you consider making a one-time donation or perhaps giving monthly as a Truth Ambassador? You can call 888-644-8811, or you can give online at ktt.org. And then as a thank you for your generous gift, we'll send you an encouraging book that follows two churches during the coronavirus pandemic and their courageous decisions to reopen despite orders to remain closed. It's titled God Versus Government, Taking a Biblical Stand When Christ and Compliance Collide. And this book provides insight and wisdom on what believers should do when the state violates the church. You want to read it for yourself? Send it to family and share it with church leadership. Again, call 888-644-8811 or give online at ktt.org. You can also write to us. If you're able, jot down this address on an envelope. That's Know the Truth, Post Office Box 30250, Anaheim Hills, California, 92809. And if you've never reached out to us before, we want to welcome you with an encouraging devotional booklet from Pastor Philip. It's called Resting in God's Daily Sufficiency, 
ask for it when you call 888-644-8811 or visit ktt.org. Also, be sure to connect with us on our social media channels. You'll find us on most platforms when you search for Know the Truth with Philip DeCourcy. Well, I'm your host, Wayne Shepherd. Join us again next time for more life-changing wisdom from the book of Proverbs. That'll be next time right here on Know the Truth. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Know the Truth Incorporated. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. <laughs>